Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I want to start with a, a few thank yous. The first is to the person who is responsible for my being here today, which is uh, U.S. Census Director Robert Groves. Uh, uh, he really was mortified that he couldn't be here. And I'm, there are a few people here who I think know Bob and probably know that, in fact, he would be mortified to, to not live up to a commitment. Um, but unfortunately, the, um, the shutdown intervened, or almost shutdown intervened. Um, but he certainly sent his greetings and his congratulations to the Williams Institute uh, on the 10th anniversary. And, and I'll talk a little bit about some of the ways in which, as Census Director, um, Dr. Gross has been really moving the, the Bureau along in thinking about data quality issues around same-sex couples. Um, two other people I'd like to thank. One is Lee Badgett, and not just for the wonderful introduction. Um, as Lee says, our interactions began very, very early in my kind of researcher career. I've had multiple careers, if any of you. Not only am I in multiple journals, but um, I have been a software engineer, uh, almost a priest, and uh, now this. So, um, so that kind of thing sort of runs in my background. But um, Lee is someone who very early on in the research career I became aware of, and what I quickly began to understand is the level to which Lee really is a pioneer, particularly in the field of economics. Um, she was someone who decided this was the work she's interested in, and if organizations that I go around to don't find this interesting, I will just find another organization that does. And she has built uh, a remarkable career and is, in my opinion, an inspiration to students and, and a model to say, you know, you really can, if you do what you're passionate about, you can succeed. Um, and so I thank her very much, um, both for introduction and for, for that role in my life. Um, and the, the third person I'd like to thank before I get into this is my current sort of co-author uh, around most of my census stuff, and that's uh, Mike Steinberger. Mike is a, who I think is in the back somewhere, Mike is a, um, a newly tenured uh, economics professor at Pomona College. Uh, Mike came to the Williams Institute about three, three years ago, I think, as uh, he was on sabbatical from Pomona and uh, came and uh, served as one of our public policy fellows for a year, and um, he really liked it. So he had this interesting strategy. Um, he kind of just decided to just stay and, <laughs> and, and figured perhaps no one would notice that... Um, that he's still there. Um, and in fact, you know, three years later, when you walk in the office, there's Mike. Um, and no one has really questioned that. So, but uh, Mike has been a, a great colleague and he's really been incredibly helpful in a lot of the work that we're now doing with the census, uh, again, to improve the quality and validity of the data on same-sex couples. So I just wanted to to acknowledge him. So, as Lee mentioned, what I'm, this topic is going to be a little bit different than, than, and this was partly for my own interest to do something a little different than I, I normally talk about, which is to, to talk a little bit about the politics and some of the uh, behind this uh, effort to get LGBT inclusion within data sources. So, um, 
so the, I'm going to start with the, the kind of antagonist here. And so wh- wh- why should we not collect LGBT data? And I'll start with, um, I'll get into this a little later, but uh, for those of you who don't know, fairly uh, two days ago we came, I came out with a research brief in which I made a, an estimate of the size of the LGBT community, about 9 million Americans, 3.8% of the population. I'm going to talk about that more later. But the reaction to that has been, um, in short, complicated. Um, <laughs> and, and as I often tell people about the work at the Williams Institute, at least my work at the Williams Institute, I get questions all the time about, well, do you get a lot of pushback from uh, conservative people, from, quote, the opposition? And the truth is, no. Almost all of the opposition I get to my work is from the LGBT community, um, almost exclusively. And, and here's an example, and it's, there's you know, an element of folks who are really uncomfortable with counting LGBT people. Um, they believe it's just really hard, it's really complicated, they're very worried about you know, what are you doing with people in the closet and what does this mean and what do these numbers mean. And so this quote from a, a, a recent critic of mine, um, Alex Blaze, Blaze, who's an editor at a, a gay blog site called Billerico, he says, Uh, in referring to kind of how there's all these dimensions of sexual orientation and gender identity, a study that just asks people will produce numbers in the end. The numbers will be useless, but there'll be numbers. And and what he's reflecting is this sense that, that, you know, it's just you can't ever capture this. And, you know, I mean, I can have lots of responses to that, but, but it is, there is this sense, not only among him, but, but also people who do surveys, that, you know, this is just, it's, it's too hard. And, and it's not, and, and whatever you get is so caveat, there's so many caveats and whatever, that it's not useful. Um, another thing is that, which is related to that is this idea that the questions are just too sensitive. And so people are get, get, would get really nervous about asking, answering questions about their sexual orientation or uh, gender identity or sexual behaviors, and they'll produce large non-response, so very few people will answer, or even worse, they'll just terminate the survey um, and sort of mess up other results. And then um, a third thing that I hear, well, actually that is an unspoken factor when I talk to these survey administrators, is that it's just too politically volatile. Like, no one is really willing to be the one who jumps first um, in terms of asking these questions on their survey. And, you know, and the truth is, there's some validity to that. Um, we talked a little bit, I think, yesterday about the historic attacks on federally funded sexuality and LGBT-related research. Uh, Lee mentioned the work I did with Lowell Taylor and my other advisors, Dan Black and Seth Sanders. That was on the first major NIH grant um, to uh, fund and support analysis of demographics of the LGBT population. And as part of that, and, and that was one of the grants that was targeted by the Traditional Values Coalition at the time. And we were on the, you know, the coveted blacklist uh, for that. So that has put a very toxic environment around uh, people who don't want their surveys subject to that kind of scrutiny. Um, and and there's a, continues to be a genuine nervousness. So um, what's my response to those things? Why should we collect the data? Well, the first is, this is, LGBT people's lives are being debated everywhere. 
And if, if we can't, you know, whether it's health disparities, relationship recognition, families, discrimination, youth, education, I mean, there's a whole host of these issues. And the truth is, in our world, if we can't enumerate these people, it's that you can't inform these debates in a, in a very meaningful way. Um, you wind up relying, uh, in my view, too heavily on anecdotes. And, um, and that's not to say that there's not really, really good research that can be done that's, that's qualitative research, and those are really you know, important things. But the other reality of our world is that, that it's important that that be also accompanied by these kind of population-based studies that, that allow you to make so, at least some assertion that this is true of the LGBT population, not just of the group that I happen to, to study. Um, a second is the need for increased visibility. Um, if we don't ask these questions, so my, I have an op-ed that's appearing tomorrow in the Washington Post, and my conclusion is, you know, if you're not being counted, you don't count. And in a political sense, if we're not made visible on these surveys, it's very easy for politicians to say we don't exist and for policymakers. And so I think there's a visibility factor. And then my response to the kind of this is just not possible to do is, well, yes, it is. Um, I, we have a, a lot, a, a good, solid body of evidence that says that we construct we can construct questions on surveys that have conceptual clarity, that can capture the different dimensions of sexuality and gender identity. And finally, and, and I, the, the final caveat, I am uh, sort of working in the scholarly community, there's always, though, challenges, and we're all about talking about all the challenges. So I'm going to start by talking about some of these challenges. And, and one of them is the challenge of who do we count? So how do we count the LGBT community? I've, I've talked about these different dimensions. Well, one of them is identity. So um, this is 11 population-based surveys. Uh, the first set uh, measures sexual orientation. The last two are two surveys that ask questions about gender identity. And you see you know, a fairly wide range of, of um, point estimates for the size, for the people who self-identify as LGB in the, in the case of most of them and then the last two, uh, transgender identity. But nonetheless, these are all large-scale population-based, in many cases, national surveys, both the U.S. and throughout Europe. And these questions, they were asked they worked on the survey to the extent that you know they didn't create any serious problems with the methodology of the survey. We can debate what what it means to have these kind of different uh, point estimates, but nonetheless, it's possible to ask these questions uh, of identity. A second way is to think about attraction, or and, and another way is behavior. So in these uh, first three bars here, these are three surveys that asked about lifetime same-sex attraction. Again, we see that um, you know l much larger estimates than this, the uh, estimate of people who self-identified as LGB. Um, so in the case of the NSFG, it was uh, shy of 4%, but almost 11% who said they had a same-sex attraction. That isn't inherently a problem. 
it's those are we're measuring two different things and we have different reasons why we might measure those two different things you might if you're interested in a study of discrimination in the workplace you might be interested more in a sexual identity or or uh, gender identity question because being in, in some sense, to make an argument that you're being discriminated against, you can say, well, it, at least in some way, you have had to be open about that identity. So you would want to think about identity. But if you're surveying youth, for instance, who many of whom have never had sex, or who are in lots of kind of flux about how they, or even uncomfortableness about how they might identify themselves, attraction might be the better way to capture it. And a third way, if you're doing a study of HIV risk, you might want to think more about sexual behavior because that becomes the kind of mechanism through which you think the the risk around HIV is working. And so there's three estimates of same-sex sexual behavior. But it's not problematic that there's three different ways to look at this. It's it's just there are three different ways. And, and we need to think carefully about what way we select in thinking about um, uh, measuring the LGBT community. But, but what I will say is that certainly in, in the latter part of my career, or sort of somewhat different from the very earliest part of my career, I am now very careful about the terms I use. So I would never call those people who acknowledge attraction or uh, behavior lesbian, gay, or bisexual. It's up to them how they identify. I only call LGBT people people who self-identify as LGBT. That's my standard, but it's problematic because we don't have language then for what these other people are. Or, and in truth, they don't necessarily have an identity associated with that attraction or that behavior. So it becomes a kind of language problem as well. But again, that doesn't mean that we can't uh, continue to have that clarity about how we're conceptualizing um, sexual orientation or gender identity. So uh, another way that I've built a career on of um, counting, uh, sort of measuring a dimension of sexual orientation is who you're in a relationship with. And you know the U.S. Census has been um, a boom in terms of data, mostly just because it's huge. And it's a way, it's, it's the only data source of its size that has some sample that we can argue captures a dimension of sexual orientation. And that's if you're in a cohabiting relationship with a same-sex couple. So this just gives you a very brief history of how, it's an interesting kind of social thing about how we, the Census Bureau, to the extent that it's sort of reflecting society, how it thought about um, family relationships and partnerships. So in 1880, you could be single, married, or widowed slash divorced. So you had three options. So in essence, you were single or married. Like, I mean, that's really what it was. Um, in 1890, they separated the widowed and divorced for separate categories. And then it was more or less the same. And then in 1950, they added a separated category. Um, and then in 1980, with the advent of, you know, in that time, they would have called it shacking up or living in sin, they added, <laughs> they added this category of partner slash roommate. Now, what's interesting about that is, and this is a bias around the notion of different sex couples, 
a couple in 1980 in which there was a man and the woman in the household and one of them was called a partner roommate was just assumed to be a non-marital cohabiting couple because the notion of different sex people living together as roommates you know the argument was that really wasn't it didn't exist but the problem was there was no way to disentangle same sex couples because most roommates at that time were in fact um, roommate and same sex couples i mean were in fact roommates and some small portion of that were actually in romantic relationships so in 1990 the bureau added took out that partner slash roommate created a separate category for roommate and added the term unmarried partner and this was the ka-ching, ka-ching moment in terms of um, the work I do. And that was the basis for my dissertation and, and all of this stuff. So, but that now suddenly we could look at, and, and I should say that largely that was not in any way an intention to be able to determine same-sex couples. There was a lot of interest in um, non-marital cohabitation, increased uh, fertility within, you know, increased child rearing within non-marital couples, and that was, uh, for the most part, designed. I won't say that the census had no sense that you could find a same-sex couple. I'm sure some did, but it, largely it was not the motivation um, to add that that category. But it nonetheless created a, uh, a an enormous data set of same-sex couples. Um, what was interesting was in 1990. Uh, how did, you, how did they treat it when they found a same-sex couple who used the word husband and wife to describe one of the partners? And their decision was to say that that's not possible. That, and so they changed the sex of the spouse to the other sex. <laughs> and um, they created, uh, essentially, a different sex married couple. Now, that sounds insane. And from a political sense, it is. Unfortunately, it was the correct decision. The vast majority of those couples in 1990, in fact, were different sex couples who were lazy and, and, and just made a mistake on their form. Um, and, and, and we know that because what happened in 2000 was they made arguably a more enlightened political decision and said, and this really was largely a political decision in 2000, that in fact it's possible that some same-sex couples think of themselves as husband and wife, even though you can't get legally married in 2000. And so instead of changing the sex, they changed the husband and wife to the term unmarried partner, and they were counted as same-sex unmarried partners. The problem with that, so, so all same-sex spouses were counted in this group called unmarried partner. The problem with that was they created what we in, in uh, sort of st in statistics world calls a, call a false positive problem. So at very tiny rates, married couples do just make these mistakes and they check the wrong box or they smudge the form or, or, or something. And, it, and maybe it's two in a thousand. And they get that form shows up at the census. That looks like a same-sex couple. If census accepts them as a same-sex couple, and let's say that's 0.2% of all the married couples, that comprises 20% of the same-sex couples. The number of people who fall in that category suddenly swamps the same-sex unmarried partner, and it, it messes up your data because you now have a sample that looks like same-sex couples, but 20% are actually just miscoded different-sex couples. And so 
my, you know, one of the things I've been working on, I, uh, as I said, the work I've been doing with Mike Steinberger has been to, to one, first, convince the census that this was a serious problem, which we have now done, yay. Um, they have acknowledged it public, for the first time, they acknowledged it publicly in a population association meeting three years ago that Mike and I presented a session with them. It was all a bit of kabuki. It was all coordinated with the Census Bureau that Mike and I were going to present a paper showing there's this nasty error problem. They were going to say, yes, actually, this could be a problem in our data, and we need to think about how to handle it. And so what they did actually in, there's an annual survey called the American Community Survey, which has replaced the census long form, so it looks very much like the census. It's about 3 million households every year. They changed their editing procedures in the 2008 ACS. They changed the, the, I won't go into great details, but they changed the structure of the form. They changed the way they processed. When they found a, a same-sex spouse, they became more, essentially the editing, they became more skeptical. And they did more sort of checks to see if they really thought that was a same-sex couple. They looked through the rest of the record. There are other ways in the record that you can kind of make a better guess as to whether they're a, a boy or a girl. And, and, they'll, and, they'll, and they make an assignment. And the bottom line was the number of people who were using the term same-sex husband and wife between 2007 and 2008 dropped by 25%. Mike Steinberg and I had estimated that about 30% of the sample was corrupted. So it was our big I told you so moment with the census. Um, so now go to the decennial census. So what, what we said was, now that you're kind of doing better at, at sort of uh, uh, measuring, and there's still serious measurement problems, but nonetheless, you're doing better. You need to stop automatically changing these spouses to unmarried partners. That's no longer the legal reality in the United States right now. They're, they are, in fact, couples who are legally married. So um, the census has made very modest moves on this. And what they've said is, you know, we're still in our internal data editing and changing spouses to unmarried partners, but we will publicly release at national and state level uh, counts of how many couples called themselves husband and wife versus how many called themselves unmarried partner. And at a national level, we'll show you some demographic differences between those two groups. Um, and so that, that is, that, but that is the very beginning of a process. And that's what sort of made a lot of headlines around the time of census 2010 and a lot of outreach that was done, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, but the truth was, it was the, only the tip of the iceberg. It's a very modest first step that they did. So this is, this is only the unmarried partner group, because so, the spouse thing, as I pointed out, is a little complicated. But you see that over time, there's been a steady increase in the number of couples reporting themselves as unmarried partners, a big jump from 90 to 2,000 of 135%. Um, compared to only a 13% change in the population. In the next five years, it went up 13% compared to 2% in the population. And then in the, the remaining five years, another 12% compared to 6% in the population. So it's starting to level off a little bit uh, relative to the population estimates. But um, the, the question is, why is it increasing? And, and curiously, it's not increasing 
at that rate everywhere in the country. The states and the areas of the country where you're seeing the big increases are in uh, the most conservative parts of the country. And what that's giving us an indication of is the size of the closet. In essence, you know, I, I, there is, it, it's entirely possible that more gay people are in fact coupling, um, but not that many more. Like, I mean, it, I don't think that's the explanation. I think the explanation is more willingness to report largely and and it's it and one of my rationales for that is that you see these big increases in really conservative parts of the country where you're you're actually seeing acceptance um, going up, and then you know you had a bigger pool of people who were not willing to report who now are. So the curious thing is what that number will will look like in census 2010, and uh, we'll know that at the end of the summer. So one of the challenges that census faces is this crazy system that we've created around um, how we legally recognize same-sex couples and, um, and these very limited responses options. So on the census or ACS, you can just say, um, on the decennial census, you don't even have a marital status question, so you can just call someone your unmarried partner or your husband and wife. That's the only way to get identified as a same-sex couple. So what this tells you, we did a survey, um, in part funded by the U.S. Census Bureau, of same-sex couples after census 2010, and we asked them what was their legal status, and then what you know, and then we, we looked at where they lived and could then figure out what the actual um, recognition was where they lived. And what we found was this direct correlation between the kind of level of legal recognition and your willingness to use the word husband and wife. So if you were legally married and you lived in a state where the marriage was recognized, almost 90% used the word husband and wife. And the group that didn't said they didn't either because, A, they thought it was a federal survey and the federal government doesn't recognize their marriage, so they didn't use the word, or they hate the words husband and wife, um, and they, don't, they just don't use those words. If you're legally married but you're living in a place that doesn't recognize your relationship, it drops to only 62% using husband and wife. If you're in a civil union or registered domestic partnership in a, in a state that recognizes that, a quarter use the word husband and wife, even though they're not, in technical senses, married. And if you're not recognized, only 12%. And curiously, even people who are not in any kind of relationship recognition, if they live in a place where same-sex couples can get married or get a civil union or RDP, you're more likely to use husband and wife than if you live in a place with nothing. So, um, so, it's a, so that's a kind of survey nightmare to try to figure out how to measure that in, in a population um, with these crazy laws. So what, how do you interpret when you, you know, the end of this summer when these numbers come out, how do you interpret what it means when people use husband and wife versus unmarried partner? Well, our estimates is of the ones who use husband and wife, about 70% of them are legally married. 15% are in civil unions or RDPs, and then the rest are just not in a relationship, but they use the word husband and wife. Um, now, the, the flip is, is a little better. For people who use unmarried partner, 96% of them are not legally married. 4% say they're legally married. Uh, a decent chunk, 17%, are in a civil union or RDP, and then the rest um, are not uh, in any kind of uh, legal relationship. 
But so, unmarried partner is probably pretty indicative of who's not legally married. Husband and wife is a predictor, but not a perfect one, of being legally married. Um, and, and again, it, 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 the, the interpretation can change depending on what states. I mean, we didn't do this at a state level. That last chart suggests that it would be very different depending on the state that you're living in, how to interpret it. So um, what are the issues that the federal government is thinking about in terms of LGBT data inclusion? So there's a couple efforts, and um, Dr. Groves was uh, kind enough to, to kind of walk me through what the current things that the Census Bureau or uh, some of the surveys administered by the Census Bureau are doing around uh, LGBT data inclusion. So the, the first is uh, the National Center for Health Statistics right now is actually testing gender identity questions for potential inclusion on what's called the National Health Interview Survey. There has not been a firm commitment to add either sexual orientation or gender identity to that survey, but nonetheless, they are testing questions, which is theoretically a, you know, better than not testing questions. And in fact, we do need more research on um, how thinking about how to measure gender identity. So that's happening. Then I've talked a lot about these efforts to improve the accuracy of same-sex couples. So they have initiated a large-scale project in which they're assessing actual changes to the ACS household roster and, more interestingly, the marital status question. The household roster has been a fairly fluid set of responses, so adding and changing responses to that, I don't I mean, it's not common, but it has happened. Changing the marital status question would be a really big deal on a, on a survey like the American Community Survey. And they're trying to figure out how to change that in a way to capture these non-marital forms of recognition. And it's difficult, because, and the problem, again, is different sex couples. Um, they don't know what a domestic partnership is. is the, so if you get your benefits as a domestic partner thing, Different sex couples seem to assume that means they're in a, a formal domestic partnership, even though you know that's not how we're meaning this term. So they're struggling with this, but they are actually doing testing and considering these things. So what has been our role in, in this effort? Well, first, um, this was uh, something that, that Lee brought to the Williams Institute when her organization, the Institute for Gay and Lesbian Strategic Studies, joined this team. Um, and she had a, a grant from the Ford Foundation that brought together scholars from around the country. They met for over five years and uh, came up with and to ask, how do we get sexual orientation questions on surveys? And uh, what are the best practices for the questions to ask and for analyzing those data? And so that produced a document that has just been indispensable in, in the efforts. Um, because the first question you get is, well, what question do we ask? And we can just hand them this and say, here's the opinion of a, 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 a prominent foundations study of over five years, big set of scholars, lots of testing. Um, so it's been enormously valuable. Um, a second is kind of public pressure. Uh, as I said, today I have, or tomorrow uh, in the Washington, it's up on the website now in the Washington Post, an op-ed calling for LGBT data inclusion. A, uh, a few years back in the LA Times, an op-ed suggesting that they need to count these same-sex uh, spouses in the data. Um, and the truth is census pays attention to those things because 
Census is very sensitive to people not being willing to answer their surveys, and they don't want to tick off constituencies. So um, they actually are sensitive to public pressure like this, um, and, because their concern is that if a group gets too hostile, they're, they're not going to be willing to participate in their surveys, and, and that's a meaningful concern for them. And then finally, the, the kind of partnership that I think several have spoken to. This year, uh, there was an unprecedented effort by the Census Bureau to um, promote the census with, specifically within the LGBT community and promote um, participation in the census by the LGBT community. And, when they did, and so they hired staff across the country to do explicit LGBT outreach. When they did that, they came to us to say, you know, what do we tell this community? Because, of course, it was a little bit of a tough sell. There's, they didn't have a sexual orientation question. They didn't have a gender identity question. It was this kind of quirky same-sex couple question. So we tried to f- say, here's the ways you can try to encourage and talk about the, the same-sex uh, couple data as, as really valuable. And um, I believe we're the only organization in the country in which these kind of uh, outreach materials were co-branded with the census. So um, that, that, and that partnership has also then led to Director Gross being so willing to come and talk today to us or, and to um, just an ongoing kind of collaboration and a kind of heads up where we keep each other informed uh, about the work we're doing. So it's been uh, incredibly useful. Um, so new things that are happening, Jody alluded earlier to we're doing a transgender roundtable to begin a process kind of akin to that um, uh, best practices to think that thought a little bit about transgender stuff, but this is a very intentional process to think about measuring transgender um, identity and, and, and the transgender population. Um, a, a recent success is that de- the Department of Labor accepted our, we submitted a, a short research brief on uh, questions that they should add to a survey that assesses people's use of the Family and Medical Leave Act, and we got them to add a sexual orientation. They unfortunately did not take our recommendation to add a gender identity question, but we did get a sexual orientation question, and they added some response options that were kind of sensitive to LGBT issues. Um, they are supporting my work with Mike Steinberger in a, Steinberger in a variety of ways. Sorry, Mike. Um, in a variety of ways in which we're assessing the same-sex couple data, and uh, including access to confidential census data that allows us to assess that better. They're uh, providing the funds to uh, so that we can get access to those data. And I'm also serving on the advisory group for this couple to this project to assess same-sex couples. So the last little bit of my presentation now is just to kind of walk you through a little bit, okay, what do we know uh, from the data? So the first is my now uh, infamous estimate of the size of the LGBT community. Um, Nine million people. uh, The laundry list of what's freaking people out. um, 3.8, it's not 10%. What does that mean? Um, Gay, lesbian, 1.7%. Bisexual, 1.8%. That's freaking some people out. Um, And the trans number has some people a little uh, jittery. Um, But again, my 
idea was to look at as many population-based surveys as I could find in a fairly recent time window. Um, I borrowed from, for you political junkies, I borrowed from kind of Real Clear Politics or Nate Silver, this kind of polling, poll of polls approach. Um, none of these surveys are perfect. They're all entirely credible methodologically, but they're not perfect. So perhaps one of the ways that you can kind of smooth out potential biases too low or even potentially too high is to smooth out the results with an averaging. So that was the, the attempt here. Um, so uh, bisexuals are more likely to be women. Um, in all but one survey, the majority of women um, among lesbian and bisexual women were bisexual. In all but two surveys, uh, the majority of men uh, self-identified as gay. So this is a really common pattern in, uh, in all of these surveys. Um, this is, I doubt, a surprise cohort effects. Younger people are more likely to self-identify and it goes down with age. So um, in the general social survey, which I always have to caveat, the results I show here from the general social survey are from a, a pretty small sample size. So I would uh, treat them as suggestive, not definitive. But you know, you see a very clear pattern. It does show up in a much more robust survey, the California Health Interview Survey. Not the pattern isn't as strong, but certainly for seniors, it is statistically significantly lower than what it is for the older or for the younger cohorts. Um, Education is a persistent finding in surveys. LGB people tend to have higher levels of education. So this is the general social survey again, same caveats I just suggested, uh, the, the California Health Interview Survey. You see that, um, so, so in the CHIS, 35% of heterosexuals have a college degree compared to almost half of lesbian and gay. Not that different. The, the uh, bisexuals and heterosexuals, there's not that big of an education difference. Uh, it's mostly driven by gay and lesbian. Uh, there's a lot of college-educated bisexuals in the GSS, but a huge amount of less than high school as well. So it's kind of an odd distribution there. Uh, but nonetheless, there's a, there's a clear pattern of gay lesbian identified being uh, higher educated. Um, racial and ethnic diversity. There's, there's a kind of... Um, a pattern in the literature that suggests that minorities are less likely to self-identify as LG or B. Um, I don't find that in a lot of these surveys. There's a difference in B versus LG by minorities. Minority, racial and ethnic minorities are more likely to use bisexual than whites are. But if you look at the, the general uh, racial ethnic distribution, if there were huge differences, then gay and lesbian should look different. And the percent white is about the same in both of these surveys. Um, there's some minor differences you know, when you take the individual racial ethnic categories. But on the whole, racial ethnic minorities, I don't think that that pattern is as strong as some people assert it to be that, that um, identity is so different. Um, I think there's some evidence that it is, but it, I don't, again, I just don't think it's as strong as some suggest. Um, this was, uh, we added questions uh, two years ago to the general social survey where we asked sexual minorities about coming out. And uh, we asked a battery of questions about coming out, about discrimination. Um, that's an upcoming report that we're gonna do. Um, and also about, um, family and relationship status. 
But what we find is, so one of the questions when I tell you that half of the LGB are B, the question I get is like, where are all these bisexuals? You know, I don't know any of them. And, <laughs> and, and uh, let me assure you, you know, I know some of them. So I, it, it, it's, it's absolutely there. But also one of the places they are is they're closeted. And this is the one of the most fascinating findings about, that I think about um, survey stuff. So I constantly get this thing that you can't measure because you have the closet and people won't answer the question. Except that 13%, if you sort of combine LG and B, 13% who used the word LG or B to describe themselves in the survey said they had never told another human being that they were LG or B. And yet they told the survey. So we should not assume that everybody who checks LGB on a survey is out to anybody. There are, in fact, people who will tell a survey and not tell another human being. Um, Now, that's not to deny that there are also people who won't tell the survey, but it's to say that we should not assume that everybody who's closeted will will never appear in our data. But the big difference is only 4% of of lesbian and gay people said they had never told anybody compared to 25% of bisexuals. And in the workplace, it's almost, it's, I, sorry, I can't see, I think it's 6% of bisexuals are, are out um, to everybody in the workplace. And m- almost half are out to no one in the workplace. So it's a much more closeted group. Um, what, what do we know about same-sex couples? Well, right now the estimate is 1.16 million individuals are part of a same-sex couple, so 581,000 same-sex couples. Of that group, and this was from our same-sex couple survey, about 70% are not married or in a civil union or DP. About 14% said they were legally married, and 15% said they were in a civil union or RDP. Interestingly, of the married group, um, more than half, or um, uh, sorry, 43% had formerly been in a civil union or RDP. So there's, it's kind of like a pathway to marriage for, for some couples. And then if you look at the group that's in a relationship, um, that in a marriage or civil union, um, I think it's about uh, 25 plus 16% are in a place where they're not recognized. So a, a big chunk of same-sex couples are in places where... Th- so they're, they're getting these statuses even though they're not recognized, which, which is also, I think, fascinating. Um, our estimate is that, so the census suggested that there was 152,000 couples who used the word spouse. Our current estimate is that about, there are about 80,000 legally married. That implies about 80,000 legally married couples. And uh, we have some other data to suggest that there's about 85,000 couples who are in non-marital forms of relationship recognition right now. And again, 430,000 couples. So, so clearly... That 150,000 is a little problematic. It's not clear how to interpret that number given the the more uh, those other statistics. So um, not all LGBT people are urban. Uh, this is uh, same-sex couples, or in the case of the CHIS, uh, LG and B people. You do see that they are more urban than the population, but you know, 14% of male couples and 19% are female. Uh, female couples are rural. In the California survey, 7% of LGB men are rural, and 9% of women. So this is now we're going all the way back to Census 2000, and, and I'm showing this for two reasons. One, 
This is uh, the brilliance of census. This is the only data source where we could do a map like this to kind of give you some sense of where there are high concentrations of at least a sub-portion of the LGB population, uh, in, this, in this case, same-sex couples. But the other reason I'm going to show you about this is when, you, when we lump LGB and potentially T as a demographic, there's a danger there because, as you saw in past ones, 60 or 70 percent of that group is white. And so when we think about it as a demographic, we have to be really careful. What you're capturing here is the, the um, geographic patterns of white people in same-sex couples. Because if I do this map with African Americans, that's what it looks like. It's a completely different map. So that's African-Americans in same-sex couples. And what that's a map of is where African-American people live in the United States in high concentrations. And what that tells you is that, and then this is the map for Latinos and Latinas. So what that tells you, there's a couple things. And this, this pattern works at a national level. It works if I showed you the same maps of L.A., um, African-Americans in same-sex couples live in South L.A., and Latinos and Latinas and Asians and Pacific Islanders live in East L.A. It follows the patterns of the population. So if you're trying to survey the LGBT community in Los Angeles, and you set up a booth in West Hollywood, you, <laughs> you're going to get rich white gay people. <laughs> And if you want to find the whole LGBT community, you have to go into these communities of color. That's where LGBT people of color live. They, they largely do not live in, in gay ghettos. And quite frankly, if you did this for male and female, you would see a different map too. And particularly on city levels, women don't live in gay enclaves. They live around them. <laughs> So if you, if you think about, I mean, the, the for, right, right, so, but if you, and, and, you know, anybody who lives in, anybody who lives in D.C., for those of you who, who know D.C., you know, DuPont Circle, Logan Circle, Capitol Hill, that's where the guys live. The women are in Tacoma Park. Um, all around the edges are the high concentrated areas. And that pattern exists in most cities as well. So all by way of saying is that it, it's, a, it's a caution to people doing policy work or doing uh, programmatic work to, to just constantly keep in mind that what's dubbed as gay is often white, male, and rich. And that's one of the reasons why that stereotype remains. And, and we need to be much more kind of cognizant of that. Um, there's this notion that gay people don't couple, except that um, three surveys here show that the portion of lesbians who are in a same-sex partnership is about the same as the proportion of all women who are in a partnership. It's two-thirds. That's roughly equivalent to, to women's rates of being with a male partner. It is lower in men, but it's still half. So it's, you know, coupling and partnering is much more common, I think, than, than many people think. Um, Poverty is, is, we've talked about this already, is, is a serious problem. In the National Survey of Family Growth, 15% of men who identified as gay were in poverty, almost a quarter of lesbians, and one in five children being raised by same-sex couples in the 2000 census were living in poverty. 
And you see this in, re in receipts of public assistance. They're higher for both male and female couples. This is 2009 now. They're higher for both male and female couples than for d people in different sex couples. They're dramatically higher for couples who are raising children. So why, why all this difference for couples raising kids? Well, one of the things is the source of the children. It turns out the condition on having a child, I now have two surveys um, that that's, are very suggestive, that conditioned on having a child, lesbians and gay men and potentially bisexuals have their first child earlier than heterosexuals. And what this suggests, so, you know, for, for heterosexuals in the, um, in the, the survey on the left there, I, Sorry, I didn't mark the surveys. The survey on the left is the general social survey. The survey on the right is the California Health Interview Survey. Um, for, for heterosexual men, their first child was at age 25. It's almost four years younger for gay and bisexual men. And, and in the CHIS, this was only asked of women. For heterosexual women, 22% had had their first child before age 20. For, gay, for lesbian women, it was uh, 27%. And for bisexual women, it was 43%. So they're having their kids at an earlier age. And what it is is they're having their kids before their, uh, my sense is they're having their kids before they're open about their sexual identity. Um, and they're probably doing it in heterosexual relationships. So here is one interesting difference, which is that child rearing is dramatically higher among racial and ethnic minorities in gay and lesbian people. And in this case, this is people in same-sex couples, although this has been observed in some other surveys that uh, include single people. Um, the rate of child rearing among African-American women in same-sex couples is 50%. That's about the rate of child rearing in African-American women, period. In other words, sexual orientation does not affect the probability that an African-American woman will have a child, which is, you know, I think, again, very different than our preconceived notions. And it's higher for men. For men, it's, 11, it's only 8% in white men. It's 26% in African-American men and 24% in Latinos. So it's more than double. Um, and that's one of the reasons why you see these kids who are in economic the kids of same-sex couples in economic distress, many of them are racial ethnic minorities who are, in fact, economically disadvantaged. So this is educational attainment. For people in same-sex couples who have less than a high school degree, their rate of childbearing is no different than people in different sex couples for both men and women. And there's not much difference between men and women. The, the, the split in becoming less likely to have children is among people who have higher education levels. So again, indicative of, of this um, pattern of, of, I argue, being out, uh, having your kids earlier in life. This is where parenting is most common in the United States. The states where same-sex couples are most likely to be parents are Alabama, Kentucky, Mississippi, Tennessee, Arkansas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, and Texas. This, the metro areas, the top three metro areas where same-sex couples are most likely to raise children are San Antonio, Texas, Jacksonville, Florida, and Raleigh, North Carolina. Same-sex couples who parent don't live where same-sex couples live in high concentrations. They live in sort of uh, more rural areas, uh, less um, kind of gay-friendly areas, more conservative areas. So now I just want to 
be show you which one is the loudest soccer mom? That's what I'd like to know. <laughs> At the soccer field, there are two moms cheering for the same child. But in church, Letitia Bynes and her partner, Misty Gray of Jacksonville, Florida, are part of a new face on the old Bible belt. Same-sex couples raising children, turning to pro-gay churches for support and acceptance. Okay, we're gay, we're lesbian, but our God still loves us, no matter what. A surprising UCLA study of the 2010 census reveals same-sex couples in the South are more likely to be raising children than similar couples even on the West Coast. San Antonio is number one, number two, Jacksonville. It took one phone call to find out why. Why is this happening in the South of all places? It's my backyard. We're actually more likely to have children early from a prior relationship earlier in their lives. Demographer Gary Gates has another big reason: Southern pro-gay churches reaching out to minorities and creating safety nets for the entire family. Of course, not all churches are happy to hear about this trend. This, in fact, is one of them here in the Jacksonville area. The leader of this church is calling on pastors all over the city to pray. I believe that they should be preaching a positive message that Jesus is right. And that these couples, they should not have uh, gay relationships? I believe that the couples in the church should have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that would bring a conviction that Jesus taught and the scriptures teach that marriage is between a man and a woman. Simple. But not so simple for people like Letitia Bonds, raising her three biological children with her partner, Mrs. Ray. Hetero, homo, it doesn't matter. Right. Either way. Yeah. It's a great support system. Today, today. And their pastor believes happy parents start with happy children. The focus is the children. Yes. Absolutely. The children being able to serve God with their families and not being judged. It wasn't too long ago that gay and lesbian couples might have thought it was too risky to bring their children to church with them. This Jacksonville church was firebombed three times back in the 1980s. Now it is a place for family worship and youth groups, signs of the times, and a changing Bible world. David Mattingly, CNN, Jacksonville, Florida. So, um, you know, that... That's not modern family. Um, and you know, virtually every image of that is not an image we normally see. Um, people of color, people in a religious community, uh, gender nonconformity, all of those images in there are something we don't see that much. And yet, they're so prevalent in these statistics. Um, and I, that's a, a constant frustration of, of mine. So um, to wrap up, I just want to say, that said about same-sex couples and child-rearing, the truth is adoption and other means are definitely higher in same-sex couples. So 10% of same-sex couples have an adopted child compared to less than 4% of different-sex married couples. We estimate that there's about 65,000 adopted children who have LGB parents and 14,000 foster kids. Um, so why do I think it's important for data inclusion? 
Um, obviously, I want to inform these debates with facts, not anecdotes. I want to challenge stereotypes, and I want to increase LG. I want more of those CNN stories uh, to show this kind of uh, aspect of the community. And uh, finally, for my own self-serving reasons, I want to be have my picture next to Alfred Kinsey uh, <laughs> in a uh, paper of all things in the UK. Um, so... I will stop there. Thank you. So I, I was originally invited by Gary and Brad to, I think, basically be the co-pilot who gets to nap during the whole flight while Dr. Groves and Gary right. do their thing, and then Dr. Groves dropped out. So Gary asked me, or invited me today to be tough on him and play devil's advocate and stir the pot up, although I think with customary Gary Gates and Williams Institute thoroughness, you really covered everything that possibly could be said, and, and it's going to be a strain to come up with tough things. So before I do, I actually want to just flag the moment where you got gasps, I think, from this yeah. audience, and that was with the maps where you showed us really, in a very dramatic and compelling way, the difference that the data presentation, uh, not in a artificial or, or overstated category or a familiar category, but really honing in on particular data. And we saw the difference if you focus on African-American or if you focus on Latino as opposed to the general category. So I just want to invite you, if there's anything more you'd like to say about that, what, what lessons should we, as advocacy organizations, as individuals telling stories and so on, what can we take from that? And what's the Williams Institute going to do also to take that gasp reaction we all had here and get that out there to the American people? Well, I, I think one of the things that advocacy groups have to do is, is to be a little more careful about the imagery they use and, and also perhaps to who they kind of... Um, Go to who they kind of present as the image of the community, and that CNN story was prompted by it was a front page story on the New York Times um, that prompted that story. Evan, I am delighted to say, was one of the very few gay, kind of prominent gay people out there who actually cited that story in a blog. The silence in the LGBT media after that story came out was deafening. Um, there was very limited coverage of that, and I'm not sure why that is, but it's it you know it it's a little bit troubling. And I and the other thing I will say is finding that couple. So I um, the New York Times originally wanted to find a same-sex couple who were not white. The kids came there through another relationship, and it took two months, and we had to go through multiple gay groups to find anyone who could identify such a couple, even though, by all evidence, they are kind of the, the biggest portion of same-sex parents. So I think that the, the movement has to be a little more intentional in these efforts, uh, or I would argue a lot more intentional, uh, about both including not only the imagery, but, but including those folks into their trying to sort of uh, get them interested in, in the work of the movement. Okay, so now I'm going to take your permission to be tough on you, and uh, obviously you've been at the center of a very, as you described for us today, uh, of a lot of controversy this week, and a lot of challenge, I think, as you said, from LGBT organizations and people, or at least consternation and anxiety, and I think uh, the broader reaction to that is probably still to come. Right. So... 
Let me start by asking you, with the, whatever you want to call it, the 9 million, the 3.8 percent, the, the overall thing, which you've talked about a fair amount already, is there anything you would have done differently now than where you than were a week ago <laughs> in terms of how you put it out there um, and what the story is about to I, continue to unfold to be? Yeah, I've thought about that. I mean, it, it feels like the only thing I could have done different is to even... so. One of the things I try to do in this Washington Post editorial is, is in some ways put some things into that that perhaps now, in retrospect, I, I, language I should have put in. So when I said to you about, you know, there's a difference between measuring identity, between measuring attraction and measuring behavior, and it's not inherently problematic that those numbers are different and we shouldn't necessarily make assumptions. That isn't explicitly in that little research brief that I did, and it's created, you know, again, some kind of uh, drama uh, around those numbers. I mean, the truth is that I think a lot of the angst is, and I also point out this out in the op-ed, is, you know, I was the kid, you know, 30 years ago who was in a classroom of 50 people and looked around and said, oh, there must be four people like me. So that 10% number isn't just a number. I mean, it, it defined a movement for a long period of time, and it defined a lot of people's experiences of coming out, was this odd reassurance in some fashion that there were others like me almost everywhere they went. If there were more than you know 20 people, there was at least another person in there like me. And so I've come to better appreciate that that's an important dimension of, of that number and that I have to be careful to not be flippant about that, that number. So I'll ask you again another tough question that may be at odds with the real role of the Williams Institute and your role, but I'm going right. to invite you to comment on it anyway, which is given what you just said, the number that's starting to get the reverb now is 9 million. Right. You know, and so that's not 1 in 10, that's 3.8. What is right. it? 3.8% so of adults. Whatever the hell that is. Yeah. So... Um, <laughs> What number is the number we, whether it's we including you or we on our side of the, the work, uh, really actually should try to create more reverb around and, and put out there understanding that your probably first instinct is to say, well, there are three different things and each three is relevant and so on. Get, we get that. I mean, well, there's, there's now actually, a, there's already a Facebook group called Nine Million and Proud or something like that. <laughs> Um, I'm not. I'm not joking. There literally is. Um, uh, so, I, you know, in my mind, as challenging it is, as it is, I think from a movement perspective, we need. I, I think identity is still the measure that we kind of need to focus on because it's so critical for the movement that people do identify in that way. I mean, you're, you tell people all the time, come out, talk about your relationships, tell other people your stories. If, you, if, if we use some other measure like you know, same sex, I mean, do we really want Larry Craig in our group? You know? um, and, and what does it mean that Larry Craig is part of what we're calling our group when in truth, I believe that the truest statement Larry Craig ever said was, I am not gay. I mean, that man... Yeah, whatever it he would, is. Whatever he is, he will <laughs> never, ever call it gay. Um, but so I do think that the, the identity number is, for, the, for movement purposes, it has that kind of salience, and I would kind of, but I'm happy to hear a counter-argument. Well, I've had 20 minutes to think of one, but... <laughs> 
so rather than do a counter argument, what I'll, what I'll, but I'll, I'll push back on that and say, all right, so I understand the point you just made, and, and certainly there is something very significant in people who openly identify as LGB or T. That said, there are a lot of Larry Craigs out there, right. and taking Larry Craig out of it, there are a lot of the people who are not anti-gay in the way that Larry Craig was, but who are not yet willing to identify as gay, et cetera, et cetera. And are we, by focusing on the 9% or allowing the focus to be the 9%, are we missing some opportunities? Nine million. I'm sorry, what did I say? Nine (laughs) percent. Yeah, see, this is why I'm a lawyer, not a... Thank you. Um, absolutely. The answer is yes. Yeah. Because the other, the other, you know, to be, play my own devil's advocate, the other argument is that the closet is also a part of our narrative. And it's, it's a devastating part of why LGBT people struggle in the way they do. It, it, the the, the um, horrible con- the consequences of the closet are, are awful. Um, and so I think that has to be reminded. I think the problem is I don't know how you count people who won't. Count. Who are closeted? Like, yeah, they don't want to be counted in that way. And I also think it's unfair, even if they're genuinely struggling with it. I'm not going to be the one telling them who they are, even in a, in a kind of esoteric statistical. Well, way. but it's not just telling them who they are, right? Or, or at least it's not directly necessarily telling them who they are. Right. It's telling. The but in a, right, but in a big picture way, if you try to kind of inflate the numbers in a way that you're trying to account for the closet, you're implicitly kind of enforcing a an identity on people who are not yet at a place where they'll use that identity. And I, as much as I think the closet is problematic, I think it's more. I would argue it's it's as problematic to kind of uh, make assumptions about where these people are going to go in terms of their identity, and you know. I still just think in in both in a totally practical way as well as sort of in a theoretical way, it's better to use just a a straight-out identity measure. So you talked about the the three different things, and it's okay that there are three different things, and some people are going to agree with you, and some people are going to come to agree with you, and some people are not going to agree with you. But what I'm interested in, and the the three different things are essentially expression or identities, and that's the number you're most uh, focusing on at the moment. Uh, There's behavior, and there are obviously... That's 19 million in same-sex behavior. There you go. The size of what state? Uh, that's was that, was that Florida? New York? Florida, Florida. Florida right. So, yes. you, you, so, because I thought actually this was a compelling thing you said. The the identity number, the nine million, uh, is New Jersey. Is the size of this population, of New Jersey. And I think even to say it that way immediately makes it sound more compelling. So it was a good formulation you did, and we all should be repeating it. And then the the next one was behavior. And that's Florida. That's Florida. And then there's attraction. And that's Texas. Right. And that's... And that's how many million? 27 million, I think, almost. Okay. So you talked about those three, and your, I'm guessing your basic I don't want to say line of defense, your basic line is probably going to be, it's okay, there are those three different things, and that's the nature of the beast, and that's right. what we do on your side of the table. So, um, but, but I actually thought you added a fourth one today, and I'm wondering why that isn't equally given weight and whether there's more to be done with it, and then that was relationship. It, well, and it's interesting, going back to your very first question to me, I struggled with whether to include the same-sex couple stuff in that um, brief. And I made a decision not to, mostly because I I really thought it was... So, you know, I've done all this work with same-sex couples. I 
I, the other pushback I get constantly is all you do is same-sex couples. That's not including everybody. We're not in those numbers. And I get kind of a lot of pushback. Well, I never hear that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, I made a judgment call that anybody who wants to find out about same-sex couples, I give a nod in the report. I acknowledge that that's another way. There's a two or three sentences that that's a way that some surveys have been used. Um, but I intentionally decided not to use the census data um, because, one, that's out there a lot, and I think these other estimates are not. Um, and, two, I wanted to keep it as focused as I could. Which, And the other component of that was I believe this is the first attempt by someone to say, based on population-based surveys, this is the size of the trans population. And you know, I think that number is a little more speculative than the LGB number, but nonetheless, it is based on population-based data. Well, it strikes me watch, you know, reading the brief well, I think on a plane or something a couple of days ago and then uh, in the conversation that's followed or just begun over the last couple of days, I actually think the four are very important and I would add, okay. encourage the Williams Institute and certainly Fair the enough. rest of us to add the fourth because it is a very real other way of doing it. It's the same kind of flip the map thing. Right. And, uh, yeah. It's an important part of the conversation and it's a valid uh, aspect to it. Fair and enough. what state is it? What size? Oh, I'd have it's to think about that. Something? Is it's it, what's 1.16 above million, Delaware? So, or we, yeah, I don't know where you're, I'd have to think about well, that. I don't know. Well, you get to work on that. I'll figure that out. So so let me ask you one other question, and then I, I imagine that people have comments and questions as well, and, and that is that, so you, you talked earlier about how so much of the pushback or reaction you get is from the LGBT uh, communities and, uh, and us, and a lot of the reaction in the last couple of days has been this surprise, consternation, criticism, and so on. Uh, and we'll, the rest of that will play out. But what is the what is the opposition going to do with what you've put out there in the world? And, well, what, Pete, and what should we be doing to address it? Peter Sprigg was delighted. Um, so Family Research Council, his take on this was the fact that half of... So this is fascinating to me. The fact that half of LGB... What he was delighted about was that half of the LGB was B. Because in his mind, bisexual means well, that's that... him. Right. <laughs> but in his mind, bisexual Im implies sexual flu fluidity and non-immutability. That's what he attributes to bisexuality. Um, and so he loved it. He thought it, he thought it proves his case that um, it's really rare for people to actually be, you know, just really gay. Um, and so... So what I mean, do we, what do, we use do about it? Well, and I think, you know... I, I have not seen many cases where their critiques, to the extent that they do it at all of our numbers, hold much weight or salience. And I, while I think that there are certainly times when there needs to be a response, I think for the most part, um, the fact that they rely on us at all for data to talk about this community is indicative of their, the degree to which they really don't care, um, and perhaps to point that out. Um, but I, I, I haven't seen them use our work in any way that I would call as devastating to us as a movement. Well, but it's not, I mean, we're obviously, it's not so much about talking to them or what, what right. they do. It's, it's what is the answer? What are we saying to the American people? Right. How are we moving people? Well, I mean, I certainly think in those bisexual numbers, clearly there's some education to be done. I mean, the, the AP story that originally came out when that 
um, report released, first of all, it was like a, a one and a half paragraphs. It completely eliminated bisexuals and transgender from. It just reported that there are four million gay and lesbian people in the United States, and it, it just it just ignored the bisexuals and the transgender. And then a new, a second longer story came out of the AP. And the, if you real, I don't want to get into sort of uh, critiquing the sort of uh, rhetorical critique, but it was it positioned bisexuality d- even despite Peter Sprigg's statement. Even the frame of the the story was that bisexuality is this kind of something weirder than gay or lesbian. That it's like some strange state that doesn't deserve the prominence of gay and lesbian. Um, so I think there's some education that needs to be done to the population. So a round of applause for Gary, for Mike, and the Williams Institute. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.